0: State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick has accomplished a lot in Missouri state government in a relatively short amount of time, and now the Republican office holder is trying to outflank one of his former Democratic colleagues in the Missouri House to become the next state auditor. Fitzpatrick joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to break down his campaign and platform and some of the changes he would make if he's elected on November 8th. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast
1: style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first.
0: You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining us in studio, he is currently Missouri state treasurer, and is running to be Missouri's next State Auditor. Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the show. I think this is your second time doing this in person. All You, 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 there, you have been a remote guest just because you come from a place that's far from St. Louis. I did it, and I've done it in
1: person twice here. I did it once in the Capitol, um, and then I did it, I think, one or two times.
0: Oh, that's right. You you are reminding me of the bizarre twenty twenty election politically speaking series where we went to random office places to record the podcast. This was when
1: I was in the House. I think I did it in the Capitol. It was like
0: yes, uh, I do remember 18, that. I, think. I, I do remember that. So, why did you decide to run for state auditor? Well, it's a good question. You know, I was I've been interested in the auditor's office for a
1: long time, and it really goes back to you know why I decided to get involved in politics in the first place, and. I think you probably know my background for the most part, but I, you know, really got into politics. Because I was frustrated with government as a small business person. I started a business when I was in high school as a teenager, and really had some eye-opening experiences just trying to build that business and grow it, in particular through the recession, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and I just felt like government uh, was making my life a lot more difficult, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, trying to collect all the different taxes you have to collect and have all the licenses you have to have and get all the permits you have to get to do the things that I was doing. And I was having a lot of just challenging experiences with the government. And so I got involved because I wanted to hold hold bureaucracy accountable for how it treated taxpayers and how it spent taxpayer money. And really, the
0: auditor's office is, is a great place to do that. How do you think your experience as state treasurer will lend itself to being state auditor? Well, I think that... Uh, you
1: know, I had six years in the House and four as treasurer.
0: And so it's given me
1: an opportunity to work both in the legislative branch, but also, you know, be on the other side of the table in the executive branch. And I've been responsible for running programs. Uh, I've been, I've had to start from scratch this uh, education scholarship program that we just started. Um, I've been, you know, dealt with the uh, you know, I've been audited, number one, I've been audited four times by the auditor's office now. And so I've been, I've seen uh, the auditor's office from that perspective. Uh, So I I just think it's just given me a lot more, uh, a lot more time to better understand how government works and be a part of the executive branch is, is, I think, been
0: beneficial. And I think it'll help inform kind of the, the work we'll do in the auditor's office. So if you end up winning this race and Eric Schmidt ends up winning the Senate race, Republicans will hold every single statewide office in Missouri. And I think that the common argument against a Republican holding this office is there has to be somebody who is not a Republican to hold a largely Republican state government accountable. How would you respond to that argument? Well,
1: I I would just tell people that uh, that have that question to look at my record. You know, I've been, I've got a ten-year, a ten-year record in the House and in the Treasurer's office and on boards and commissions. And I think if you, anybody who does the research on me knows that I'm going to do what I believe is the right thing. And I, mean, I, I have no problem holding people accountable, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. And I think the same ar- argument could be made about. You know, if you have a Democrat auditor that's auditing all these Republicans, they, you know, you could say that they're going to try to politicize their audits. Look, I just want to call balls and strikes. I want to help make government work better. the The record that I have um, it shows that I'm willing to to call people out, even if they're Republicans and I and and they're wasting money or doing something wrong. And uh, I'll continue
0: to be the same I've always been. So we had uh, your Democratic opponent. State- Former state representative Alan Green on the show. Why would you be a better state auditor than him?
1: Well, you know, I, I listened to the to the podcast with Alan, and uh, you know, I think his answer is probably the same as mine. I think the experience that I have is more relevant um, to to the job of auditor. I Think Alan's a nice guy. Um, I like Alan. I just don't necessarily think that when you compare the resumes, that his is you know is as good as mine when, with regard to who would be a better auditor. The time I have in, you know, uh, on the budget committee. I was on the budget committee the entire time I was in the legislature. I chaired the budget committee for two years, and I've run a, you know, a, a department essentially of state government. And I think when you combine that with the private sector experience and the, uh, the experience that I've gotten serving on boards uh, like MHDC, uh, on like the pension plan board. And uh, running these other programs that I run, that my resume stacks up better.
0: I, I think you actually bring up an interesting point and a distinction between the treasurer's office and the auditor's office. When you're treasurer, you're on all these boards and you have votes on these boards, and you can actually like do things on in the realm of pensions or investing or low-income housing. With the auditor's office, you often point out deficiencies, but you. Oftentimes, don't have the actual power to fix them. Is that something that you would like to see changed if you're elected auditor? Well, I think that uh, you know when Tom Schweik was auditor, he gave
1: the audits, uh, you know, the auditor a little more ability to, um, uh, you know, really do things with the auditor's office. I mean, the subpoena power now that that the auditor's office has, uh, you know that. Auditor Galloway has had the opportunity to really kind of uh, build out, you know, the public corruption unit there. Uh, And, you know, look, I think that, yeah, obviously the goal of audits is when you have findings that you work to uh, take those findings and, you know, make change happen. And some auditors have probably had more success than others at doing that. I would try to, you know, leverage the relationships I have uh, left in the legislature and uh, the Relationships I have in the executive branch to take the audit findings and try to actually make uh, make policy out of them. I don't think you can give the auditor, you know, like the ability to just go in and run the department or make the changes for the departments when when you find uh, find something that's wrong. But you have to empower them to kind of force the hand, um, you know, of the of the departments if they're
0: not complying. Before we delve a little bit more into issues, unlike former Representative Green, you did have a primary against State Representative David Gregory. And it was a pretty competitive primary where both of you were spending money running ads. It seems that whatever hard feelings there were have kind of been papered over. It was not the nastiest race ever. I want to make that clear to our listeners. But how do you think that made you a better general election candidate that you had to go through that? Well, um, you know,
1: number one, yeah, it, w- it was a a lot of work, and David ran a good race. Um, and I was I was frankly surprised at the margin. I mean, we I, I won by like thirty points, and I, I thought I was going to win. I did, but I did think it was going to be a little closer than that. And I think what I what I learned from that is that the kind of the residual name idea of having been in a statewide election meant more than I realized that it did. As far as you know, I think. You know, I think iron sharpens iron, and so anytime you have a primary, number one, um, you know, I had I had to go out and raise a bunch of money, and we spent a bunch of money, and so I've you know, got another million dollars worth of name ID out there that I didn't have before the primary, uh, whereas the the other candidates running in the general, I don't think have spent any money at all, and so I look at that as an advantage. I did get attacked a little bit, but uh, I don't think it really stuck that well, and so you know, having. Spent the year uh, and a half or so running in the primary, going around the state. um, You know, is is I think all that translates. You know, I won the primary, so I think all the work that you put in in the primary kind of rolls over into the general
0: election, and and uh, I think I've done more of that work than anybody else running. So, if you're elected auditor on November 8th, what would be some of the major priorities you would want to push in office? Well, you know, I think with the Amount of pandemic era spending that's taking
1: place and at every level of government, there's going to be more audit opportunities on uh, on pandemic related programs and expenditures, as well as uh, you know all the money that's being spent by local governments. I mean, San Louis County got like or San Louis City got like five hundred million dollars in this latest round. Um, you know, they're who knows what they're going to do with that money. I'm sure they've already started making some decisions, but there's going to be a lot of op- audit opportunities with that. The other thing I want to do, and I've talked a lot about this on the campaign, is I do think we need to begin taking a closer look at how schools spend their money. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, two-thirds of kids in the state aren't proficient in math, two-thirds aren't proficient in science, and over half the kids in the state don't read on grade level. We're giving schools record amounts of money. And listen, I say this, I always preface this by saying I grew up in, you know, public school, uh K through 12. My mom's a public school teacher for 33 years and I fully funded the formula when I was a budget chairman and and so I support public schools but I also think there needs to be accountability and schools are getting more money than they've ever gotten before and I think it's important that we make sure that they're spending it to prepare kids for the workforce or for their next phase of
0: life if that's college. How how many public school districts are there in Missouri? Aren't there like over four or 500? I think there's 516. Okay, so that gets into a broader question. Like, there are hundreds of local political jurisdictions in Missouri, including school districts. And there's only a finite amount of people in the state auditor's office. How are you going to be able to have like the literal manpower in your office to actually accomplish what you just said about schools or any other local government? Well, we're not going to be able to audit every single school in the state. And a lot
1: of the, you know, I mean, when, when you talk about all the other political subdivisions, I mean, the, the cities and municipalities.
0: I, I mean, instance, cities, counties, sewer districts, yeah. water districts, fire districts, like it's literally almost endless, yeah. to be honest with well, you, but continue.
1: A lot of those are, are petition audits. And um, I think this is one of the things that maybe came up in your last in your interview with Alan but that I don't think he maybe didn't understand the question, but I mean, there are some audits that can only be conducted by petition if there's a petition of the citizens. And there's a you know a division within the auditor's office that deals with petition audits. And um, you know I think that the auditor should have more discretion on how often county audits are conducted. It, I think it's kind of, it's in the statute that it has to happen every four years on these third-class counties. And I don't think that necessarily makes a whole lot of sense uh, to have in statute. So, the other thing is the auditor's office is pretty understaffed right now. They've got about 100 employees. They're budgeted for 160. And so, you know, when I get there, I'll kind of evaluate the situation if I win and and uh, I'm going to try to get staff back up to where it's budgeted for.
0: Well, you mentioned third-class counties, but there have been pretty major scandals in St. Louis and St. Louis County over the last few years. I guess you could make the argument if audits were more regular for those places that are larger maybe some of that malfeasance would have been found would you want to like audit larger jurisdictions more regularly than they are now well i would but you
1: know and that but st louis county st louis city they're both uh they're both petition audit situations mm-hmm. and so i i think the auditor should have discretion to audit the bigger uh, political subdivisions you know without having without having to get a petition uh, done and you know that's you know something that i think should change
0: yeah and as we brought up in the Alan Green podcast, like St. Louis County does have its own auditor, but um, that office holder has not done a lot of auditing, not the current one, but the one before then. So, like, when you even have a process like that break down, it seems like maybe it's worthwhile for the state auditor to step in a little bit more easily.
1: Yeah. I I think that... uh... I think that it should be easy, you know, if the auditor wants to come in. Now, maybe when you're talking about, you know, because in a petition audit situation, the the auditee has to pay for it. And so, uh, you know, maybe you can still have the petition opportunity if, you know, if the auditor doesn't want to do it or doesn't want to spend the resources to do it, then the petition is another option to allow the audit to happen where the political subdivision has to pay for it. But the same, you know, the same issue with the city. I mean, I, I've said that I think the circuit attorney's office needs audited. It's, I think it's insane what's happening in, in St. Louis City. Um, you have you know, people walking out with murder charges. We have murderers literally walking out of court free because nobody from the circuit attorney's office is showing up to court. And yet they're spending millions and millions of dollars a year of taxpayer money. It's like, what are they doing with it? And so I, I think that there should be
0: that discretion for sure. So both Tom Schweik and Nicole Galloway have uh, kept this rating system for jurisdictions. Yeah. I think it's like excellent, good, fair, poor. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. I was going to say horrible is one of them, but it's it's not. Would you keep that in place if you're elected auditor? Yeah, I think you know the
1: reality of the situation is, and as much as I'm sure the people writing all the audits don't want to hear this, most people are not going to read those. But um, you know the citizen summary um, is. Is good, you know, a one or two page kind of summary of the findings at the front of the audit is good. Um, I think the the rating system; it's very easy for press to kind of pick that up and and let people know, you know, a uh, you know, you know, Barry County got an excellent rating on their audit, or you know, Caldwell County got a a poor or whatever. Um, You know, I would maybe consider some of the nomenclature because for some people it's like, well, you know, excellent.
0: Is there super-excellent or is there, you know, it's like... Yeah, I could understand what you mean by that because there doesn't seem to be a huge difference between excellent and good. Like obviously there is, like excellent is a better than good, but you could say, well, what degree... Is it only good compared to excellent? And I know we're getting into like yeah. literal linguistic semantics here. Yeah. But I could see that being an issue with that particular yeah. part of the rating system. Yeah, I think I think the idea is good. I, you know, maybe you go to a star rating.
1: You know, three stars out of five or something. I don't know. But I mean, the the idea is giving people a quick and easy way to understand how effective and uh, their local government is. Um, And, you know, how good a job they're doing managing their resources is the right thing to do.
0: We'll be back after this quick break with Republican State Auditor hopeful Scott Fitzpatrick. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick. He is the Republican nominee for State Auditor. So let's get into your favorite topic, which is low-income housing tax credits. Auditors in the past, including, I think, Galloway and Schweik, have pointed out the inefficiency of this program, and you've been knee deep in the this kind of ecosystem since you become not only state treasurer, but you were in the house. Would you want to continue examining that particular tax credit as well as other tax credits in Missouri? Well, yeah. I mean, tax credits
1: are a massive expenditure in general. I mean, over you know, I don't know, between six and seven hundred million dollars a year, um, you know, gets spent on tax credit programs. And you know the Low Income Housing Tax Credit program is the, uh, you know, the largest of, of those, it uh, continues to be the largest of those. Um, you know, I think that the program has come a long way uh, since it was shut down in 2017. The main criticisms of, of that, the way that program worked and the audits of, of years past has been um, the amount of money when, when the state gives somebody tax credits to build the housing, they have to turn that into cash. And the criticism has been, you know, that in the past, you know, I think the last thought it was 42 cents out of every dollar that was issued in tax credits is what made it into the housing. And we've improved that number substantially with some of the reforms we've accomplished on the commission and gotten it up more close to like 70%, which is, I know it sounds like a pretty steep discount still, but it's a lot better than what it used to be.
0: So you were really kind of the lead driver behind a lot of these changes. So if you're tasked with auditing this program, could you objectively say that some of the changes you implemented aren't working, or would you like have somebody else audit it? Like, would you recuse yourself and have somebody else do that audit? Uh, they do have conflict audits uh, for uh, you
1: know that th- take place. Like you know when I if I go into the uh, auditor's office, they're going to have to do a closeout audit of the treasurer's office where I would be coming from. So I can't be involved in that audit. I would have to kind of like survey kind of the, the, the scope of the audit because a lot, I mean, there's a layer of separation mm-hmm. uh, of commissioners from the staff. And I mean, there'll be a lot of, of things that could be looked at that the commission doesn't necessarily have direct input on.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I want to make it clear to our listeners, like this isn't really a malfeasance conflict of interest. This is more of like a policy conflict of interest, sure. basically. I would say it would depend on my level of involvement. So if, there, if we were going to audit,
1: like, um, you know, if there was going to be an audit of how well the uh, most scholars program was implemented, I would need to recuse myself from that. I was directly involved in that from start to finish and had, uh, you know, pretty much the final say in everything that took place there. Um, so it really just is a, it is a, an issue that I
0: think would depend on the scope of the audit and what we're going to look at. Is there anything that the state auditor's office is doing now that you would like to see changed? Well, one
1: thing, and I, it kind of circles back to what I talked about in terms of my priorities, is the um, the school districts. I they, you know, there's over 500 in the state. Um, the legislature passed the law to allow the auditor to audit school districts in 2008, and I think they've only done like 19 audits in 14 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, and they're doing 130 audits a year or something like that total. So. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and only, you know, one or two of those a year has been, you know, a school. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of need there. And I've actually already heard from people I that, that have come to me and said, we really think you need to audit X, Y, or Z school district. And so um so that's you know, that's probably the main thing that I think is not being done that I would like to see done.
0: Yeah. And I think that you were actually involved in the Public school space because in I guess twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one your office dealt with bonds and I guess you weren't giving bonds if they were doing certain COVID restrictions and I think that that was not well received by some superintendents. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so obviously
1: the attorney general's office was uh, you know there was the, there was the ruling that struck down that the the ordinance or the rule the rules that had been promulgated related to the. Uh, Public health orders, right? And uh, you know, the attorney general's office didn't appeal that, and that's been its whole kind of thing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, the attorney general's office informed all the all the school districts that the court had struck down that rule, and that they had to cease, um, you know, cease uh, enforcing mask mandates and quarantine orders and things like that. Otherwise, they'd be subject to, you know, uh, basically legal action from the attorney general's office, and you know, separate and apart from that, uh, we have a, a program and statute that essentially allows school districts to take advantage of the state's credit, superior credit rating when they borrow money mm-hmm. uh, by entering into like a, a a program where we will person or we will, the state will essentially uh, co-sign or guarantee the debt of the school district. Mm-hmm. And so the concern that I had and that we told the school district is that listen. Because some of them had just publicly said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to comply with it. And, you know, that was concerning. If it's somebody who's getting ready to co-sign a loan for a school district, if you have a school district that's saying, you know, we're going to, you know, we're actively in defiance of a court order or at least the Attorney General's interpretation of a court order, uh, and we know that a statement has been made by the Attorney General that they're going to pursue legal action against the school district, it does not make a lot of sense for for the state to essentially guarantee debt for an entity that it's also getting ready to sue. And so we told these districts, you need to sign an affidavit saying you're compliant with this, and then we'll sign off on your bonds.
0: Did, is this really even much of an issue anymore, given that I don't think that many public school districts have mass mandates or anything like that?
1: Um, it's it, Honestly, I haven't... Uh, haven't had a lot of complaints about it lately. Obviously, it became a big deal when it first happened. There were some school districts that were really not pleased with it. But we're still you know, financing a lot. We're still signing on to a lot of these bonds and the affidavits being signed. And the next treasurer, uh, whenever they can come, come in, can
0: determine if they believe that, um, you know, believe that that affidavit is still a necessity. How would you want to monitor a lot of this federal pandemic-related money maybe differently than Nicole Galloway is doing right now? Well, I think
1: what uh, Nicole has done, um, you know, has largely been uh, state-related. There hadn't been a lot of like, you know, post auditing, you know, and that's really what the auditor's office is going to do. I mean, um, you know, she hasn't, frankly, had much of an opportunity to um, look at how this money has been spent because it's still in the process of being spent. And right. so, um, you know, there's a lot of programs that are that were set up by the legislature. But the real big thing is. Every single, you know, when we talk about political subdivisions, I mean, every single county and every single city in Missouri got a significant allotment of of uh, this ARPA money. And they're going to spend that money in the next couple of years. And there are very, very few restrictions on how it can be spent. And so when I talk about, you know, I think one concern I have is, that, you know, the smaller a political subdivision is, the, the fewer internal controls exist oftentimes and can result in. Um, it result in bad things happening sometimes. And so I think that there are probably going to be a lot of whistleblower tips coming in related to how this money gets spent and that there's going to be a lot that can be investigated relating to that. And so um, that that is, I, I don't, I don't think Nicole's done anything, you know, or not done anything that she should have done so far because she is you know, a lot of this is taking
0: place as we're speaking. And right. I don't think all, I don't think the state has allocated all of the American Rescue Plan money yet. Right. Right.
1: No. Well, the 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 legislature included it in the budget, but the reality of the situation is there's no way all that's going to get spent this year. So, no. um, it'll be a couple years. I mean, there may be some op- audit opportunities that come up in the next 12 months, um, but it'll be at least a couple of years, probably before there's really that's ripe to look at
0: very closely. Well, you mentioned whistleblowers. Like what? What would, would there be anything about the auditor's pro- office that you'd want to improve that process? Well, um,
1: yeah, you know, I'd want to get a little bit better understanding of how they're dealing with the whistleblower complaints. And um, I think that the, you know, the whistleblower protections are, I think, pretty strong right now. I do think that uh, there's, you know, makes sense to probably look at uh, the authority of the auditor to deal with those things. I mean, they're, I mean, I, the subpoena authority the auditor has right now is a substantial en- enhancement to the office from um, from back when uh, you know when it, when that didn't exist. But I do think that uh, you know if you look like you may have seen this thing with like Brett Favre down in Mississippi. Oh and, oh uh, yeah.
0: Well, I'm a Chicago Bears fan, so <laughs> seeing Brett Favre uh, fail is. Is, is pretty
1: gratifying. Right. So, I mean, a lot of that, you know, the, the, the Mississippi auditor's office has been at the central a yeah. central part of that. I mean, and one of the things that happened is, you know, they have the ability in Mississippi to execute search warrants. And, you know, I mean, a subpoena is one thing,
0: but they they have more like law enforcement type powers. And, and I believe that the auditor, like Mississippi is a Republican, too. So Correct. I guess that would be kind of the... Uh, rejoiner that Republicans can't oversee Republicans very well.
1: Sure I mean you know that's uh, I think it's certainly a, uh, you know a good example of how it can you know that can work out. so uh, but the, the auditor's office down there has some pretty significant authority to like enforce uh, you know to, to collect information and to, to execute search warrants if, if they need to do that. And I think it would make sense to look at that for Missouri.
0: So let's talk about this actual campaign. Um, so, you're used to running it as a down-ballot statewide official, but my understanding from covering Missouri politics since 2006, where, you know, Susan Monty won her auditor's race, is this contest, while it is for a very important office, always is a sideshow for something else. Sure. Like, are you experiencing that right now where this is just not top of mind for voters or people that you're encountering?
1: Well, it's interesting because I'm I'm coming off uh, I'm my, the only point of comparison I have for this is 2020 running a state treasurer right, and compared to that I would say you know this is there is more uh, kind of focus and attention because there are so many fewer things happening on the ballot in and off year, and you know in the in 2020 you know you had president you had governor you had lieutenant governor secretary of state attorney general and treasurer and now we have. Auditor and U.S. Senate are the only things on the only statewide things on the ballot, and in 2026, the auditor is going to be the only statewide race on the ballot. So, well, I guess just kind of back to the basic question, which was, you know, is it, uh, you know, are people paying attention? I think more people are paying attention to the auditor's race than than uh, paid attention maybe to a lot of the down ballot statewide in 2020. So, um, obviously, they're more interested in the Senate race. And uh, I would probably be more interested in the Senate race if I wasn't on the ballot for auditors. So <laughs> it's yeah. hard to blame people okay, for that.
0: OK, so I know this is a weird question, but I'm just going to ask it anyways. So former Representative Green talked extensively about how he's having a lot of trouble raising money. And I, I want to just ask, like, you're, this is a statewide race. This is actually a race where a Republican is trying to take over a Democratic statewide office are you kind of surprised that the general election is so lopsided when it comes to campaign resources? Well, I think it it's certainly if you have an opponent that has millions and millions of dollars that
1: they're actively spending attacking you. It's yeah, you're going to handle that differently than an opponent that has no money. And, um, you know, but we're you know still kind of, uh, you know, Statewide elections are, I mean, they can, a lot, of, a lot of things can happen. And I think you know, though, I mean, 2012 is a great example of this with the, uh, the Senate race in 2012, is that the down ballot races can, can certainly have a, have be impacted significantly by the top of the ticket. But you also have the example of 2018 when Josh beat Claire and, and Nicole beat Sandra. And, you know, there can be things that happen in extreme scenarios
0: where there's a big shift at, uh, you know, between the top and the bottom of the ticket or the lower, t- lower and down on the ticket. If Eric Schmidt wins decisively, does it bode well for you? Well, I think it probably does. And I think if you look at,
1: just look at 2020, I mean, the further down the ticket on the statewide ballot you got, the better performance there was. It was interesting. It was, you know, I mean, the governor won by more than Trump did at the top in Missouri. And then... You know, lieutenant governor won by a little more than the governor and it kept going you know all the way down so I mean who was the top who was the top percentage holder was it ashcroft it, yeah it was yeah. Ashcroft um and uh I think he won by 24 and I think I won by like 21 maybe and so um you know and I think trump won by 15 or 16 and parson by like 17 or something like that so I mean it was uh you know it was that kind of that kind of range. But it was interesting because down the ticket did a little better than the very top.
0: Yeah, I think one of the reasons why Missouri political observers pay attention to this office is he can be a springboard for other things. But I think that this is kind of an unusual situation where you're going to have two U.S. senators who are going to be in their early to mid 40s. So they could hypothetically be in office for the next 30 years if they really wanted to. Or longer. I, you're, I am assuming you're not going to run for governor in 2024. Like, you don't want to just be auditor for two years and then run for that. So is this really an ex- – could you possibly be state auditor for, like, the next decade if you win this race? It, it certainly seems like that's a strong possibility. Yeah, I mean, that could happen. Uh, it's, it's
1: hard to say. And – uh you know, you and I are kind of in a similar phase of life. I've got three kids. You've got three kids. I've got another one on the way. Oh, and, uh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you may not have known that yet. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to kind of play it by ear. And my, I do fully intend to to be the auditor for, uh, you know, for the next four years if I win. And then... Um, You know we'll we'll see what happens uh, see what happens after that. But I think I like the work, and I think there's a lot. I think there will be a lot to do even four years from now. And as long as I feel like I'm having an impact and I still enjoy it, I'm gonna most likely continue to do it.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming to St. Louis to do this show, and also thanks to former state representative Alan Green for recording his own show. It is really good that both of the candidates for this race are providing voters with an in-depth look of what they want to do for this important office. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you on any social media platform or any other place to learn about your campaign? At
1: Fitzpatrick, M-O, on Twitter. Um, You can also look at, uh, just search Scott Fitzpatrick on Facebook, and uh, I should probably come up towards the top of the list if you're in Missouri. And uh, I don't do Instagram, uh, so sorry for those who are on Instagram, but uh, you've got Facebook or Twitter for me. And it's scottfitzbadger.com. Thank you very
0: much, and until next time, so long.